Life Audio. Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Singard with Gospel App Ministries, gospel-app.com. We're going through the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Uh, the reason we're doing that is because I'll be going on a trip, uh, walking where Paul walked in Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi and Athens and Corinth. And so kind of trip prep, I was trying to get into the head of Paul. And since I was doing all that work, I thought I'd share it with the ranters. So we will get back to the Sermon on the Mount, God willing, uh, later. But first, we're going to take a break and, and take a look at First Thessalonians. If that's okay, we, we've looked at uh, the culture, the context. We looked at uh, the second missionary journey in Acts, and we did a real quick overview in the last podcast. We are uh, now at podcast number five. I want to look at the first two chapters. It's going to be kind of cruising, but we're going to do it. All right. But first, some words from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, welcome back. Let's get get right in there. All right, chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Pretty standard opening for, for, um, for Paul. Um, what he's basically saying, look, as, as Silas and Timothy and I pray and praying regularly. When we pray, we regularly pray and in the presence of God. Uh, I like that. He, when Paul prays, he's teaching them to pray that they're actually in the presence of God. They're looking at him face to face. There's a uh, Hebrew concept, lipne Elohim, in the presence of God, right in front of the face of God, so you can see him smile or see his, his, see his anger or disappointment. So they're, they're praying in the presence of God. And he says, we're constantly thankful and amazed at how the faith, love, and hope was birthed in you by our Lord Jesus Christ. The miraculous faith and heavenly love bestowed upon you is clearly produced in you a new desire to do good works for others. Very, very important. Okay, verse 2, we always thank God for you, all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually, you can hear the hyperbole in Paul's language. He's, he got this positive report from Timothy and he's bursting. He just wants to write them, acknowledging, encouraging, sharing some of his thoughts, his relief, his joy. He, he wants to be with them so badly, but he can't because uh, the, the powers that be, the, the jealous Jews and the Romans, we just won't let him in there. Somebody will get hurt. So Paul has to stay away. Verse three, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Just hear the faith, love, and hope, hope 
uh, those the, the triad uh, inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So to be thankful is Eucharisto. If you want to say thank you in modern Greece, you would say Eucharisto. It's the same word. I'm struck by the phrase of Paul, how he prays in the presence of God. Improsthen is the Greek word. He's, he's, he believes he's experiencing being right in the presence of God. I love it. And Paul is emphasizing a triad, faith, hope, and love. He'll pick that up. It's at the beginning of the letter. It's at the end of the letter. Beginning of the letter, it's coming from God. The end of the letter, it's something that we have to put on. It's, we have to keep asking for. We, we, uh, it's, it's not like you can bank this stuff. You need it on a daily basis. Faith, hope, and love. It's a euphemism for the working of the Spirit in our lives. And it, it creates something new, something superhuman, if you will, something alien, something of heaven in in the actions and the motivations of the true converts. Faith and love create not only good works, but the implication is good works on the behalf of others. The idea is that you become other-oriented. That's the core of righteousness in the Old and New Testament. Righteousness is not an adjective that just speaks about a, a new state. Like you, you become righteous. It's an adjective that answers the question, what got into you that you're caring more for others over yourself? It, it speaks of a new motivation that's other-oriented. And one of the marks Luke and Paul are picking up, the evidence of true conversion, is this hospitality, where you care for strangers, you care for immigrants, you care for people that you didn't hang around with. There's some new love for other people, including loving enemies and loving God. Um, and Paul is emphasizing this by using two Greek words for, for work. And, and again, implication is other-oriented, ergos and kopos. There's not a lot of difference, really. In the context, just implies that their efforts, people are seeing it. It's noticeable. People close to you notice something's changed, and you're a little bit more other-oriented. Not perfectly, that's heaven, but something has changed. Uh, per Wanamaker, one commentator said this, the love that Paul refers to is both his convert's love for God and their love for one another. Love was neither a mere emotion for Paul nor simply a social virtue. Instead, for Paul, love was, quote, the necessary manifestation within Christ's body of the new creation already underway in the working of God's Spirit. And like faith, it was inextricably linked to the activities that proceeded from it, meaning righteous. Something had changed in these people's lives. They were less selfish. They were less self-focused. They were less... Um, succumbing to addictions, which is very self-focused, right? I got to have now uh, is the Greek word epithumio, epithumia, sorry. So the hope, elpis in the Greek, produces a, a perseverance. And it's not just perseverance, like running a race, it's perseverance in the presence of intense persecution. Again, that's another sign by Luke and Paul that something has happened spiritually. So literally, he says, it's the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and most often, uh, translators take it in the genitive to mean in, but it really is of. I mean, to say it's in, I guess, is possible contextually, but I think Paul could have used a different preposition. I mean, literally, it means um, ownership. This is Jesus's hope that they are now experiencing. It's the faith and love of Jesus, which they are now experiencing. Are you with me? Uh, so often we get lazy in, in our churches and our teaching and we think about this, that we need to somehow generate this kind of hope or this kind of faith or this kind of love. And to a degree, there's some humanity to that. 
But what Paul is seeing is something miraculous, a miraculous faith of God, hope of God, and love of God, right? So it's, it's not that their original human hope has been changed. It's an inexplicable hope brought by the Spirit that makes them keep fighting even though they're having the podunk beat out of them at great personal cost. Their lives are disrupted, and they still feel hopeful. There's something miraculous in that, right? Now, you, I mean, there is some human heroic aspect of that, but, but we're talking about something miraculous. These people um, are now of God, and God is in them. So, and here, that's the point. Paul was afraid that humanly they wouldn't persevere. Why would they? This new guy comes along, this outsider, this Jew, he jazzes them with some, he lays truth on them for a couple of weeks or three weeks or a couple of months, and now he's gone. He was kicked out uh, um, shamefully from their town, let out of town, and their livelihoods are threatened, their families are threatened in an honor-shame culture. Their honor is threatened. So what do you do? Well, Remarkably, Jesus and Jesus' spirit, spirit's DNA is making them, encouraging them, forcing them, if you can stomach that, to keep on keeping on. And look, we've all felt this once. We all felt this once. I mean, when I was converted, I was fearless. Something came over me. And the rumor was that I was on street corners handing out, you know, uh, I cut my hair into a little little uh, mullet and was handing out vegetables on street corners. I mean, people were kidding, but I had changed. That's the point. It was observable. Uh, another point, Paul's over-the-top ecstatic emotions. It just comes out in this section in hyperbole. We always pray that God, to God, for all of you, remembering you to God continually. I mean, you get the idea. He's just, he doesn't have the words. Again, an editor would be nice. But it's so personal. It's so heartfelt. He just can't get over the ridiculous report from Timothy that not only is the church still there, it's thriving. And it looks wildly like Jesus. It looks like Paul after his conversion. And so much so that others are noticing. They also noticed Paul, but you know, it led to a riot. This time, good works are being noticed. Uh, and, and Timothy is saying, you won't believe this. You just won't believe what's going on, Paul. You should come see it. Of course, he can't. Verse 4, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Verses 4 to 5, leave it to theologians to get their panties in a bunch about God's election and free will, and, and look at this particular passage. Look, I love a good theological debate as much as the next guy. I mean, I have very strong opinions on things, but I really believe that that's burying Luke's headline. The point is that, um, you know, even from Corinth, Paul can tell that a miracle of God has taken place. What's going on can't be explained humanly. The real power behind the change in behavior, faith, hope, and love, is the spirit of Christ in their inner being. Uh, check out Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. I'm going to read it eventually, but check it out. You can see Paul is so dependent upon power from God through the Holy Spirit to make us feel loved by God, to make us love other people. So I don't think Paul in this verse is worried about ordo salutis here. Was it free will or God's sovereignty? I, I think that's dragging a theological argument into uh, a narrative. And you, look, you may disagree. You can push back, Bill, at gospel-app.com. Love to hear from you, okay? Paul is saying you are now the beloved of God. You know, brothers loved by God. 
In one of the earlier podcasts, I, I spoke about the omnipresent social system, the Romanoi Uergatoi, Roman benefactors, the benefactor system. Remember, a powerful, honorable, wealthy man or woman takes you, selects you, adopts you, marries you, and then your name and status automatically grows in stature. You change. And I'm speculating here, but I wonder if this is benefactor client language. In essence, could Paul be saying, I can see that you now have a new benefactor. You are now a person of honor, and that benefactor is God himself. I, I, as we get further in First Thessalonians, I think I can show you that that's probably what he's saying. So he's, he chose you, Thessalonians, as his clients. That makes you, in um, Sermon on the Mount terminology, that makes you very enviable. You weren't enviable before, you are now. All right, uh, the end of verse five, you know, brothers, you know how we lived among you for you, and then you became imitators of us. And having received the word in the, in the midst of great persecution, and you still, so I, we, we preach to you, all hell broke loose, and what we see is a manifested Holy Spirit joy. We see it in your face, we see it in your eyes, we see it in your laughter, in your prayer. Remember uh, Paul and Silas uh, singing hymns uh, in the Philippian jail? It's just not, it's hard to cast that if you're doing a movie, if you're writing Chosen. It's hard to, to make that transition unless you imply a miracle. So Thessalonians, you are a powerful example of what adoption to this benefactor looks like to anybody, all the believers and unbelievers in Macedonia and Achaia and the jealous Jews, they see you and they're scratching their heads. They, they can't explain it. Uh, he speaks of being with the Spirit in verse 5. You know, I think we use the term today so cavalierly. It's become kind of Christian noise, stuff we've tossed in, in, uh, in music. But the preposition is in, E-N, and it refers to Location, so they're somehow in the Spirit, fascinating, or state or condition, meaning you're in sync with the Spirit, or you're under the Spirit's control, or close association, there's that benefactor thing again, you're associated with the Spirit somehow remarkably, or agency, by means of the Spirit. Um, to make it more interesting, the in grammatically carries over to the other two phrases, right? You're, they're also in deep conviction, and by the way, we lived in you. It's the same preposition. So what do you think Paul is saying? What is the, Paul's understanding of being in the Holy Spirit? I think that's important, right? What do you think? Bill at gospel-app.com. Uh, the next couple of verses, verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And you became the model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. There's that hospitality I mentioned. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son, or in the Greek, it's a, it's a very interesting word, a hapax legomenon, we only have the word here to wait, could be wait. Uh, some people argue to tell of his son from heaven, um, go either way, uh, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So here's even more evidence. Your story is beginning to look like ours. He says, you know, uh, same story, chapter two. We follow Jesus. 
We got persecuted from it from the get-go in the Middle East. You follow Jesus, and look, same results. You look like family now. You have the same scars. Let's, you show me your scars, I'll show you mine. And Jesus did say that blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for there's the kingdom of heaven. See, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus. This, I'm, I'm reading from the Beatitudes. Rejoice and be glad. Well, again, you're not going to do that unless the Holy Spirit's in you. So not just was this persecution manifested, but the big tell is that you responded with joy. And, and that's, that's definitely, for Luke and Paul, one of the fruit of the Spirit. You can't fake that. Well, I guess you can fake it till you make it, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Remember how Paul and Silas, again, after being horrifically beat with sticks, I mean, the pain they endured, thrown in a dirty, uh, urine-stained, dank, sell, how they started singing. They experienced unmistakable joy. And imagine what other people, all uh, the other people in the cell thought. And that's not normal midbrain human behavior, which would be anger and fear and revenge and depression and the like. This is spirit stuff. We've all felt it at least once, right? And bad news, you follow Jesus, you get persecuted. You get persecuted for doing good things for others. Good news is when you get persecuted, you get a sense of alien joy and hope and faith and love. So everyone notices, right? And and that's that's the first step of witnessing is people seeing you persecuted and how you respond with joy. We have all felt that, right? Verse 10, I, I mentioned this, it can be translated to wait. That's probably right. Again, it's, it's a hapax legomenon. We don't know that word anywhere else. So we, a verb looks like a verb that speaks of making a sound like a bird or speaking or proclaiming. And so it could be to speak of his son. Either way fits Paul's letter. So here's my adaptive translation of chapter one. Paul and Silas to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. As Silas, Timothy, and I pray regularly in the presence of God. We're constantly thankful and amazed at how the faith, love, and hope was birthed in you by our Lord Jesus Christ. The miraculous faith and heavenly love bestowed upon you has clearly produced in you a new desire to do good works for others, even though you're being persecuted at the same time. There is a new endurance that is inexplicable by human means. It has the fingerprints of heavenly hope all over it. Everyone can see that our gospel came to you not in just mere words, but also with transforming power and with the Holy Spirit, leaving no doubt that something miraculous has happened in Thessalonica. Clearly, God has touched you. You are now the beloved of God. He is your benefactor, and you are his fortunate client. And you know how we lived among you. We lived for you. As a result, you became imitators of us, having received the word, even in the midst of great persecution from others but you still manifested Holy Spirit joy. And so you became an example of what adoption to this benefactor looks like for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It's true. The word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but everywhere. Your faith in God has gone forth all over the place. So what else can we say? What can we add? I will tell you what other congregations are saying. First, they say how well you laid out the welcome mat for us. That's a sign. And secondly, they testify how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to live waiting for his son, who 
whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. End of chapter one. We'll take a break from our sponsors and come back for chapter two. Okay, welcome back. I hope this is resonating with you and you're getting a sense. My goal was to get into Paul's head and, and I think we're being successful. You let me know, bill at gospel-app.com. All right, chapter two. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong uh, oppositions. And notice how personal Paul is writing twice in each verse. He says, you already know this. <laughs> uh, you know, brothers, he's speaking off the cuff from the heart without an editor. And, and basically saying, whatever happened, it worked. I was afraid it had fallen to pieces, but I can see now that something big is happening. Uh, you know, I should have trusted God. That's, that's kind of the impl implication, right? So from this point on, Paul is making a case because he's hearing from Timothy, likely, or Silas, that people are pushing back. They're questioning his credentials. So we can assume that Paul is sensitive. He's aware that his street cred is being challenged somehow. It's implied, right? Maybe by the Jews. Remember the jealous Jews or the church that's getting pummeled by persecution, you know, hey, hey, are we sure about this guy? I mean, what if he's wrong? What if he's a carny just like the others? What if he's flim-flamming us? Because this is costing us. and He's not even here. Uh, did anyone do a Google check, <laughs> right? Did anybody check his rap sheet from the local police department? So cred one, I personally suffered for this message. So I was publicly shamed at Philippi. That's me and Silas. We were shamed. In an honor-shame culture, he's saying something, right? For what I taught, and the word is hubris, I was treated spitefully. It was somebody with strength, they were demeaning me. And again, a big deal in an honor-shame culture. So Paul said, look, a flim-flam person would have left. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have stood up underneath all the stress. I did. Silas and I did. That, that cr gives us cred. That makes us messengers. But we're true messengers because not only has God miraculously helped us out, but he continues to make us bold. Again, if I was making this stuff, I'd, I'd run. I'd go where it's easier. But that's not what God has sent us to do. We're here, and God is emboldening us because we are in him. See? And so be assured that we're the real deal. We're not fakers. And with the help of our God is literally the same preposition we saw earlier in. So we are in our God. And I think that says more to this benefactor-oriented society than with the help of our God. Um, literally in our God. So it could be, you know, it, it includes God's helping us out, God's wealth, a little welfare, a handout, pat on the back. But I'm going to suggest that this preposition in is a benefactor-client relationship. So think adoption, think marriage, think uh, the, the voice from heaven to Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Think the relationship between God and Abraham. I have that benefactor. And so in that, I'm bold. I'm feeling bold, right? I got God. Who, who else can defeat me? And by the way, you too, you have felt that. We've, we felt that too. And he's saying you too to the Thessalonians. And, uh, and he says that based upon what Silas and Timothy have come back and reported. He's seeing the same fingerprints of a benefactor God. They are emboldened. It's proof of their conversion. Again, we have all 
felt it. So, so one of the proofs of authenticity, Paul and the gang spoke the word of God, even though they were getting pummeled. Verse 3, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men or flatter men, but God who tests our heart. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Again, he's probably pushing back on rumors. Maybe the jealous Jews are shifting their, their uh, tactics a little bit. So Paul says, for our teachings, our exhortations, right, the teaching of the gospel didn't come from deceit or impure motives or any underhanded methods. Uh, We're not doing parlor tricks, right? We're not doing full Monty. We're not pulling rabbits out of a hat. And look, we've been examined by by people in authority, the apostles. We've, We've been tested and determined to be genuine by God, right? So we, we, we got the goods. Look at our resume. And we've, we've been entrusted with the good news. And so that's what we did. We just proclaimed it. We don't speak to flatter people. We're not trying to convince you of anything. We're not trying to gain friends. We're trying to preach the good news. We speak for God, the one who continues to examine hearts. And by the way, he's continually examining our hearts. So we're not using false motives of greed, he says. Because, look... Probably, likely, there are so many who traveled around those very same Roman roads, the Via Ignatia, and they made a living out of flim-flamming good people, and they lived off the money and the receipts and the passing of the plate, uh, and what they were selling was favor of the gods, health and wealth and uh, kind of a health and wealth movement, and no doubt Paul had heard the charge or expected the charge that he was one of them. But Paul says, uh-uh-uh, we were tested by God, our, our message. He continues to do a check on our teaching. This is the real deal. And God is our witness. It's a different case than would be made by the flim-flam artist who would just do another fake miracle. Verse 6, we were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of, of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. The word is agape, so personal, so transparent. By the way, remember, just a few years earlier, this angry, enraged, theologically narrow Paul was out murdering people and justifying the murder of people. Paul has changed. He's softened, he's compassionate, he's empathetic, he's loving, uh, but he's also human. Um, He was probably depressed when Timothy arrived with the good news. Verse 9, surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Look, even even though an apostle, technically, at least in the Middle East, he could have demanded to be cared for. A little harder in, in Roman province, but nevertheless, that's what he's saying. A workman is worthy of his toil. Everybody knows that. He's setting a different tone by his life. Likely, he was in Thessal- Thessalonica for a couple of months, and we speculate that he made a living. He went to work as a tent maker, likely. And why? Probably speculation. He's sensitive of the possible charges of being a faker. Uh, using people, stealing money, false promises, false healings. He's not trying to make this a law, I don't think. Again, that's bearing the headline. 
in context, Paul is being wildly strategic. He is going to receive gifts from the church of Philippi, from Philippi and likely from other benefactors, so he's not against receiving money. Uh, that's not the lesson to take from here. So he's saying, look, I'm not like the, the other scam artist. First, I'm the real deal. God says so. And also you can see, here it is, how your lives have been changed. No carny can make that happen, right? They can make rabbits appear, but they can't change your lives. Not like this. You were worshiping uh, false gods. Now you're worshiping Yahweh. Uh, you know, you, you have joy in persecution, right? No, no, no uh, magician can make that happen. And me, I'm, I was never, I never passed any plate among you. I, I didn't look for any handouts. I'm working among you. So, so I can tell you about Jesus. And I love you that much that I'm willing to do that. Verse 10, you are a witness, and so is God, by the way, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comfort, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you in his kingdom, into his kingdom and glory. So we were like a mother with her children, like a father with his children. Man, you know, where's an editor when you need one? Paul is actually kind of repeating his metaphors. We were blameless, meaning there's no charges against us other than the fake ones by the by the jealous Jews, but we didn't deserve that. We were righteous, meaning we were doing good things for other people. We were concerned more about you than our own well-being, and we encouraged, right? We comforted, we urged. We weren't making demands. We weren't doing guilt trips. There was no hellfire and brimstone. We urged you to see God and to experience God and the joy and the peace that comes from, from that. Verse 13, and we also thank God continually. Here it is again, continually, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So basically, and it worked. So we're thanking God for this. We're shocked that it worked this well. We haven't seen that before. And here's another proof. When you heard our words, you believed they were the word of God. I mean, that's a miracle. And not everyone, right? The jealous Jews didn't hear it that way, but many of the Jews did. We, we can't fake that. So we spoke, but God somehow spoke his words through our lips and words. That word is at work. It has become a dynamic, inner tie within you. So something's inside of you, changing you, fighting against your... Uh, addictions against your former faith, against in your relationships, in you who believe, and it's observable. Not perfect, but how else can anyone explain it? Dance a little, brothers. Verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen, the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews. So uh, this and all the way through 16, you got the same treatment we did. It's a rite of passage, apparently. We were mistreated by our own countrymen when we said the gospel, and you too. You were mistreated by your own countrymen when you say the gospel, right? We got the same scars. We're beginning to look alike, right? And they're going to face judgment from God for the shaming and the tactics and, and the, the persecution. Somebody's going to pay. It's either going to be them or Jesus. <laughs> oh, good news again. Verse 17. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our own intense longing, we made every effort to see you again, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. 
For what is our hope and joy or crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And one last thing, maybe Paul feels guilt for not being able to get back to them, to help them out, to be with them personally, to suffer with them. Man, that's good discipleship. Maybe he feels regret or helplessness. Maybe he feels shame. I mean, he can't go. He still risks being arrested or fined if he shows up in Thessalonica. It could cause destruction even more so. People could be arrested with him if they identified with him, right? So he's stuck outside the walls. But he's communicating to them that he really wants to go back, uh, or he has tried and he's been held back. We don't know why. The Satan, the spirit, we don't know. Uh, hearing that he's going to be arrested, and so smart people say, don't, don't come, Paul. You do more damage than good. And then Timothy and Silas's report, right? He, but he can't go back. He is speaking to the baby church like he's their loving parent, but can't be with them. Isn't that so poignant? And again, this is the same Paul who was a murderer a little while ago. Jesus has made this man open and sensitive and compassionate and loving of others. There it is. There's the spirit. He's not whining about his stuff, complaining about his treatment. He's thinking of them though he still carries the scars of the beating and the shaming that he endured. I'm telling you, he looks a lot like Jesus. All right, here's 1 Thessalonians 2, my expanded translation. For you know, brothers, our coming to you was not without success. On the contrary, having suffered and been shamed beforehand in Philippi, as you know, we had the courage in our God, because of God, to speak the good news of God to you, even in the face of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from deceit or impure motives or any underhanded flim-flam methods, but rather we were examined and we were determined to be genuine by God and trusted with his good news. And so that's what we proclaim. We don't flatter people. We speak for God, the one who continues to examine our hearts too. So we didn't go out with flattering words. I mean, you know this nor with false or greedy motives. God is our witness. We weren't seeking any preferential treatment from people, neither from you or others. Though as apostles of Christ, we could have been demanding of you, but instead we were like children among you, like a mother taking care of her child. And so having a strong yearning for you, we were pleased to share with you the good news of God. But we have another motive. You have become dear to us. You remember, brothers, our labor and hardships, working night and day to not be a burden to anyone. We proclaim the good news of God, and you are our witness, God as well, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we were to you believers. There's no charges, none that stand up, for you know how a father deals with each of his children, exhorting each of you, cheering you up, urging you on as a matter of great import to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we give thanks ceaselessly to God for this, that you received the spoken word of God from us, accepting it not as the word of men, but as it truly is the word of God, which has become dynamic within you believers. For you became imitators, brothers, of the assemblies of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. You suffered the same thing from your own countrymen that we did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, driving us out, displeasing God, opposing all people, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved, completing their own rap sheet of sin. Wrath is going to come to them in the end. Brothers, we were separated from you for a short while in person, but not in heart. 
That motivated us even more so. We did our very best with great longing to see you face to face again because we wanted to come to you. Indeed, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. But what is our hope or joy or crown of pride before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Wow. Are you feeling the poignancy, the personality of Paul, the humanity of Paul? Um, He's speaking from the cuff. I think this is a fascinating letter. I hope you're resonating with it. Let me know what you think. Bill at gospel-app.com. We'll pick it up at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 in the next podcast. All right. Until then, take heart, child of God. Hey, everybody. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And we're hosts of the Kynos Project podcast. Where we help you tackle ancient Christian truths in everyday settings. The word kainos means new, and that's exactly what we want to do on our podcast. Bring something new from what is old in our faith. And on this show, you might hear us explore topics like what the Bible has to say about student loan forgiveness, discuss how the satanic temple affects our view of religious liberty in America, or even question why is it that so many people are having rapture anxiety. To learn more about the podcast, go to lifeaudio.com.